Jesus turns everything upside down. He truly does. The, the greatest in his kingdom weren't his apostles. But in the beginning of chapter 18, what did he say? The little children. Jesus then leaves the, the 99 sheep to go after the one. You remember that. No, who in the world would, would advise you to leave 99 of anything to go after one of something? But that's exactly what Jesus does. He calls us to love our enemies. That's upside down. That's not what we would expect. And in today's scripture, we see this pattern continue to unfold as we see one of the ones the world would perhaps most likely in the eyes of the world to be saved depart from Jesus sorrowfully while the ones that the world turns away, Jesus embraces. I find it beautifully poetic that after Jesus affirmed the sanctity of marriage in the prior weeks that we've been covering in this passage, uh, children are then brought to him in verse 13, where our narrative picks up, where it says, then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, which is interesting. See, the world and frankly, even our own flesh is tempted to see children as inconvenient, as a distraction, uh, to be something to be tolerated at best and avoided if possible, perhaps. You know, it brings me great sadness, the, the number of people in my generation and younger who have sworn off having kids, say they don't want kids. It's tragic. It's, bro it's, it's heartbreaking. It's one of the best things that's happened to me, and people say they don't want it. It's sad. But the truth is that our culture is bent on generating, let's call it for what it is, They're, our culture is generating a bunch of narcissists. We're generating people who are totally given to their own pleasure and leisure. And as we remarked last week, it's marriage and kids really serves as one of God's amazing mechanisms to shatter this prolonged adolescence that our world seems to encourage today. But fortunately, Jesus doesn't share their outlook. Not of our culture today, and not even of his disciples back then. As verse 14, it says, But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Rather than seeing them as a distraction, Jesus says, To these belong the kingdom. <laughs> that we are to humble ourselves as these children to enter the kingdom of God. That's how chapter 18 went. And I, I love that Jesus never rebukes the parents for this either. Uh, what are you doing letting the kids get too close to the Savior? Don't you know he's got more important things to do? No, he, they're never rebuked. It's encouraged. Because frankly, what better thing can you do than bring the children to Jesus? I mean, that's the goal. That's, that should be our hearts. I mean, for that reason and many more, I'm excited about that new children's room that we dedicated a few weeks ago. I'm excited about what God is going to do in and through that place. Because, see, I don't want this church to become, and I don't think you either, want this church to become a country club where, you know, children are kind of tolerated if they have to. No, we, we want them more than anything. Well, we want this to be a multi-generational church where 
we're raising up those kids to eventually take our place someday, and we want them to feel at home here as much as we feel at home here. That's our heart's desire. And I think that's a good thing. And man, it is tempting to camp on these thoughts and make these three verses a sermon unto themselves, but I want us to see a connection that I think the Holy Spirit wants us to see between these verses and the ones coming just after it that I think gets neglected sometimes. So another narrative seems to take place, picking up in verse 16, where it says, And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And by the end of this paragraph, we'll discover this character is actually quite wealthy. From, a para, from the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, we find out he's uh, actually a ruler, most likely of the local synagogue. And we look, we already know that there's going to be issues just from the question that he asked. You know, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, if you've been with us any length of time, you know that the question itself is flawed. That's, that's not what we do, you know. Uh, we are not saved by what we do, but by Christ, but because of what Christ has done for us. But I don't fault him personally because, I mean, you got to figure, if he was a ruler of the synagogue, he, this person is waist deep in the legalism and the tradition of the Pharisees. Nobody's taught him anything different. So as he asks this question, we must remember Jesus never answers a question directly. He always answers the questioner. And here Jesus very wisely asks him a question in return to his question to get him to evaluate the implications of his first question. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments, which is interesting. Uh, Jesus essentially asked him in turn, you know, you think that you're doing good, huh? There's only one who is good. You know that, right? You think you can do the works of God? Behind every question is an assumption, and Jesus is getting him to challenge those assumptions. Of course, the obvious answer is no. Jesus himself would later say in John 6 that the work of God that we are to do is simply to believe in the one he has sent. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. I can't help it. (laughs) I just love getting to the good news. But to add to this inquiry, Jesus added, well, if you keep the commandments, you will enter into life. Is that how it works? It's a, kind of a tricky question, because in a way, yes, but the problem is nobody does it. Nobody has kept the Ten Commandments. Uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says, Romans 3.10, you know, there is no one who does good, not even one. But the point of the law, um, Paul even tells us in the book of Galatians that the point of the law is to be our guardian. It's to lead us. To Christ. The point of the law is to read it and recognize I'm not keeping this. I am not righteous. I'm not as good as the law demands me be. I need some, some other way to be saved because this isn't it. And when we discover, because again, the verse says the law is your guardian to lead you to Christ. So once we discover we need a savior, once we find out his name is Jesus, we follow him. We devote ourselves to him. That is the point. 
Now, perhaps out of a desire for clarity, uh, the, this man asks in verse 18, he said to them, which ones? Which commandments do you want me to keep, Jesus? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Very interesting. When Jesus summarized the law, the whole 613 Levitical commandments, he reduced them down to two. He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second which was like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And it includes the the summary verse directly from Leviticus 19.18. But why doesn't he mention the laws referring to God? Why doesn't he talk about anything from the first category? And I believe Jesus is purposely waiting to address that. Because as we're about to find out, that's his biggest problem. Jesus gives the young man uh, the response to his question in verse 20. Which says the young, well, or rather, the young man responds to Jesus and says, uh, All these things I have kept. What do I still lack? Now, objectively, we know that's not true. Of course not. But this does come to the root of his problem. You can't be saved until you recognize your need to be saved. You can't ask a savior to forgive you of your sins unless you acknowledge that you have sinned. I mean, what would that prayer sound like? Lord, forgive me of my sins. Which ones? I don't know. It's like when I try to get my girls to apologize to one another after they're fighting. I don't know, she started it. It's, it would be that kind of thing. Without understanding our need to have our sins forgiven, it doesn't make sense. After all, only sinners need saviors. His lack of self-awareness, therefore, is very unfortunate. Yet I find it fascinating that he still knows he lacks something. Did you guys notice that? What then do I still lack? This is interesting because as a rich young ruler, he would have been wealthy, he would have been prosperous, he would have had a lucrative and fulfilling career. These are all the things that the world says. If you have these things, you'll be satisfied. Just give me those things. If I only had this, if I only had that, oh man, then then I'll be happy. But that doesn't seem to be what this guy is saying. Nor is it when we think critically about it. I mean, like, do any of you guys bother following celebrity culture? I mean, I try not to. <laughs> it's all over social media. It's in your, my face, and I still try to ignore it because I know I'm just going to be depressed afterwards. It seems like all the celebrities in the news today, they're all strung out on drugs. They're all, you know, drowning in alcohol. It's, they're, they're clearly not the f- results of a happy and fulfilled life. And look, I've been told that the loneliest person in life is the person who thinks they've achieved the penultimate experience, they are riding high, they have everything that they need, only to discover quickly that it didn't satisfy the way they were promised. I've heard more than one story of somebody who has won the Super Bowl and you know, the thing that they dreamed their whole life doing said, this is the greatest accomplishment you can possibly do. And they lay their 
head on the pillow that very night, only to realize that emptiness that's been gnawing at them their whole life is still there. And now they're even more depressed because they had hope, hey, once I, get, once I win the Super Bowl, now I'm going to be somebody. And now they don't even have that. The, all the promises of the world had failed them. Jesus understands this, though. And he understands that, he understands better than anybody what this man individually was lacking. And he tells him in verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, that's something that you perhaps wouldn't be expecting to read. It turns out it is possible to go to Jesus to be saved, to find fulfillment, and still come away sorrowful. It can happen if you don't meet him on his terms. You see, the call to salvation is more than just, oh, just trust in Jesus, just believe in Jesus. Because believing in Jesus has consequences. There's, there's things naturally attached to that genuine belief. It means repenting of your sins. It means trusting in what Jesus did on the cross uh, alone to be saved. And this other forgotten part, following him. He called him to follow him, which he was not doing. And that one of the many things that he lacked. This man was not following God. And the reason he is unsatisfied The reason he remains sorrowful is because he has revealed in his response that his possessions had become his God. When given the choice between eternal life and following Christ and his pile of stuff, he chose his pile of stuff. Worst decision he could have made. But here's the problem, though. It's not just a bad It reflects the heart. His decision reflects his heart. You see, if he's unwilling to let go of physical possessions, how much less is this person ready to surrender spiritually to Jesus and follow him? Look, stuff is one thing, but it's much harder to lay down your pride, your security, your autonomy. Saying all to Jesus, I surrender. That's much harder for many people. Many people can consent to, oh, I'll make a commitment once a week to come out to church. I'll make a commitment. I'll throw some money in the plate when they pass it around. I'll commit to a few material things. But Jesus, you want everything? I have to give up my life? I have to be completely surrendered to you? You actually have to be, gosh, Lord of my life? It's an important term that we have to, that is part of the contract. And that's just too much for a lot of people. And before we go further, just another quick footnote. Contrary to some of the liberal theologians out there, the the road to salvation isn't by becoming poor materialistically. It's about being poor in spirit. It's an important difference. Jesus didn't say to all men everywhere to be saved, you have to give up all your stuff and give it all away. He just said it to this guy. 
And for an important reason, because this man had made his wealth and his stuff, his idolatrous God. And those who have done likewise need to do the same, but not everybody. However, many do have many who do have wealth fall into this same temptation. As Jesus continues in verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see, the unique danger of having wealth is that it can very easily become an idol. It can very easily become an idol. See, wealth gives this false assurance that I'm okay, that I'm sufficient. I have everything I need. I'm self-sufficient because I got stuff. I don't need God to protect me. I've got money in the bank. I've got insurance. I've got stocks. I got this. I got that. I got real estate. I got cars. We list all these things. But hold on. Implicit in that, is rather than God protecting us and me trusting in God, I'm trusting in this stuff that I've accumulated to save me. When a catastrophe strikes, do we think, thank God, (laughs) or I have him, he's going to get me through this, or, oh, I have this, I have that, I have this other thing. And I say this, and I'm harking on this point because here's the danger that we don't realize. We're more wealthy than we think. You see, here's the thing. If you make about $34,000 a year in America, $34,000 a year, if you make that a year living in America, you are in the top 1% of income in the world. I didn't misspeak. If you make $34,000 in America, you are the top 1%. You see, here's the thing. The media, they talk about the 1% nationally. I'm talking about the 1% globally. Nationally, it's easy. I mean, you're talking about the wealthiest country with an absurd amount of wealth. Um, Or, you know, the 1% here in America is one thing. The top 1% of uh, other first world countries, that's another thing. But then you start talking about the whole world. And you can consider the one billion people living on less than a dollar a day today? It gives perspective. I mean, and then you think about the fact that even people who we might call in America lower class have access to things that the emperors and the pharaohs of old would be greatly envious of. They couldn't even grab, could you imagine handing an emperor of old a smartphone? Could you imagine that for a second? Or, or let's think more fundamentally, let's think a long time further back. Could you imagine how envious they would be of your refrigerator? You tell me I can keep all of this wonderful food and it's just right there when I need it? Wow! We're more blessed than we could possibly realize because we're in it. We see it every day. The problem is we keep comparing ourselves to others 
And it's like, oh, this person has more than I do. Oh, this person has even more than I do. And we let jealousy rob us of our contentment and realize how blessed we actually are. And here's the problem, though. Many of us are reading this, this parable. This, 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 it's not a parable. It's a historical narrative. But we read this backwards. We don't realize, hey, hold on. Maybe I'm the rich one. Maybe I'm the rich one who must enter the kingdom as though through the eye of a needle. Because look, in our world, it, it is tempting. We all face the temptation of self-sufficiency where we might perceive we don't really need to rely on God because I have a refrigerator, a smartphone, and all these other good things. And if you've ever wondered why perhaps there's no urgency or desperation in your prayer life, maybe this is the reason. Maybe there's no urgency and desperation in your prayers. It's because your other God with a small g has already taken care of those things you're praying for. Taking away the desperation. And how hard is it for someone in our predicament to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus here says, it's, it's as if to put a camel through the eye of a needle. Let me ask you a question. Is that hard? Or is that impossible? That there is no squaring that circle. That is impossible. You know, Jesus meant what he said here. And there are people who try all the time to soften what this thing actually says. I heard one person, and I've heard this for years. Oh, well, there's a gate in Jerusalem that's called the eye of the needle. And if the camel really bends down far enough, it might squeak through. Turns out not, not a thing possible. The thing doesn't exist. There's no archaeological evidence for something like that. And I still hear about it. People try to avoid and go out of their way to avoid the harsh reality of what the Scripture says. Sometimes we just have to let the hard passages of Scripture be hard passages. And this is one of them. Which, and with that paradigm in mind, that it is impossible for such a person to enter the kingdom of heaven, and if some of us might be there without knowing it, here's what we need to remember. It is so important to remember what Jesus said at the start of chapter 18, which started this whole section, where Jesus said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus there is also saying, hey, you will never enter unless... It's the same thing that we're talking about in our passage today. That it is impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven unless they have the humility and dependency on God that a child has for their parents. See, the rich person is self-sufficient. They have all that they need. But a child is utterly dependent. The rich person can do whatever they want, but the child must ask their father for virtually anything. And I don't think it's a coincidence here that Jesus just finished saying, let the little children come to me, who the disciples would have thought would have been the furthest from the kingdom of God. And now we have this rich person 
who the disciples would have thought in the first century would have been closest to being saved, walking away sorrowfully. Because, by the way, many people in the first century mistook that, or rather, what they believed was that having wealth back then was a sign of God's approval and God's blessing upon you. It's not always the case. And it's because of that, it's because they believe that this person, oh, this person is blessed of God. That explains their surprise in verse 25, where when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Seemingly most likely to be saved goes away sorrowful. And the least likely ones are, the well, are those welcomed with open arms. You know, this chapter, skipping way ahead, actually concludes by saying, those who are first shall be last and the last first. That's what this is talking about. Those who you would think would be the last ones in, those are the ones the most exalted. And some of the ones that you think, oh, wow, this person, definitely this person, maybe not so much. They're going to be last if they finish at all. I do find it fascinating, though, that chapter 18, the apostles are boasting over, oh, who's the greatest? And now they're wondering, is anybody getting in at all? Am I even going to make it to the finish line? Their questions are beginning to change, which is a good thing. They're in, their, in the overarching narrative of the Gospel of Matthew, they're starting to make sense of it. They're realizing they need to empty themselves rather than build themselves up. Reality they don't fully grasp until after the cross and the resurrection. But they're getting there. Fortunately, Jesus concludes, at least for as far as we're getting today, with a comforting statement in verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I love that that's how... Jesus answers this question. You know, this verse is quoted out of context all the time. I've heard it mean all kinds of things to winning the Super Bowl or, I don't know, fixing your radiator in your car without all the right pieces. I can do all things. No, you can't. That's not what this verse is talking about. What it means simply is that our salvation is possible, that we can be saved just not with our own efforts. You know, the hymn we're about to sing in a few minutes says this, not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. But with God, all things are possible. <laughs> you know, a camel won't be going through the eye of a needle anytime soon. That, that is impossible. The camel would have to be miraculously transformed. What it is transformed into a thread to make this possible. Which is kind of the point. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, He who is in Christ is a new creation. It's a new thing. That's very comforting as we come to this. The point isn't to force something that clearly isn't going to make it. It's experience the transformation from the inside out, which is exactly what the gospel promises. That if you believe this gospel, you believe this good news, it's, you're not an improved version of yourself. You are a new creation. You are born again. And it's on that basis that we're entering in, not based on the camel that we used to be, 
but what God has turned us into. And mark, mark, mark the words here, you know, a rich, the rich people can and will enter the kingdom of heaven if they do reject the poverty of riches and embrace the riches of being poor in spirit. Because it's not about the, your net worth. It's about the state of your heart. And after all, there are examples in the Gospels of wealthy people entering the kingdom in the Gospels. I think of Zacchaeus, for example, in Luke 19. He was also a rich man. And funny enough, he was not asked to give up his possessions. But yet he did. He offered them on his own accord. Because responding to the Gospel will give you the power to gladly do things that those who reject it will sorrowfully find themselves unable to do. You see, choosing to follow Jesus doesn't just change what you want, to, what, what you do, it changes what you want to do. You know, there's a reason why the first greatest commandment is first and the second greatest is second. Why once you, that once you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, once you love God that much, now you find yourself able to love your neighbor as yourself. God gives you the love for others once you have found the love of God for what it is. And we find ourselves able, full of love in our heart, to reach out into this hurting world where we take our eyes of selfishness off of ourselves and see this world within us that needs the light of the gospel. And we find ourselves doing things like outreaches, like we did on Friday. We find ourselves doing, uh, serving in the food pantry, in the Sunday school, in the deacon's ministry, and all of these other things that we do. Because love is a far greater force than guilt or spiritual obligation could ever be. So while it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, if he repents of that self-sufficiency, if he embraces the humility of a child, recognizes their sin, their bankruptcy, their dependence on God alone to be saved, only then, but then, it's possible. That's the good news this morning. <laughs> the same hymn that I mentioned before reflects the heart that we all must have to enter into the gates of heaven, where it says, nothing in my hands I bring, Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. And if anyone can sing that song with conviction in a few minutes from the heart, well, that is our assurance that we will be welcomed when that day comes for us. Thanks be to God.